Hello, and welcome to the Agents of Change in Environmental Health podcast, which brings you the voices of next-generation environmental health leaders. Agents of Change is a project of EHN.org and the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and Agents of Change. So first, a quick update on the program. We are thrilled to have digitally met and be working with our second group of fellows. It's an incredible group, and over the next few months, you'll get to hear from them and read their essays. If you want to hear how this all got started, please listen to episode one, where I speak with Dr. Ami Zoda, the founder, program director, and mastermind. Ami also happens to be a rock star researcher, and her personal story is worth listening to. This week, I'm thrilled to be joined by Anz Erfin, a public health scientist and lecturer at George Washington University. Anz was in our first group of fellows and wrote about farm workers' rights and health. He's continued to write for publications like the Journal for Public Health Management and Practice, the London School of Economic and Political Science blog, the Harvard Public Health Review, and the Boston Globe. Anz is both super funny and wildly intelligent, and I always enjoy hearing about what he's thinking about and working on. We talk about growing up in Pakistan, the multiple public health crises keeping him up at night, and how Twitter has slowly started to grow on him. Enjoy. All right. Well, I'm super happy to be joined by Anz Erfen today. He was part of our first group of Agents of Change fellows. Anz, how are you? I am doing fantastic. There is a pandemic. I'm still six feet above ground. Life is wonderful. Thank excellent. You. Excellent. Yeah, I know. That's kind of top of mind uh, with everybody we talk to right now. I'm really I'm really glad you can make time today. Your, your essay was, um, it really resonated with me the first time around. I live in a rural area and Anz, of course, wrote about um, farm workers' rights and farm workers' health. So I wanted to start there. From your essay, I know that you were uh, you grew up in a Pakistan farming village, you said, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your journey from growing up and working there to coming to the U.S. where you're at now. Yeah, yeah certainly. Um, so I grew up in a farming family, and uh, it's um, so I think like uh, one thing I just want to highlight for me, it's like you've been doing a lot of that work that's related to environmental justice, worker rights, health equity, and so on. Uh, but you don't have the language for it. Uh, so so my experience really was that sort of like, I didn't know that these were the terms for those situations. Um, but growing up in a farming family where like, you know, your water is rationed for your agriculture itself, and that sort of impacts your crop yields and so on. Um, and, you know, I you never get that sort of education or exposure to be able to draw the connections with climate change, for instance, you know, that why is that, that, uh, that thing is happening. So it was sort of like, you know, all sorts of like intersections of all sorts of health inequities from systems perspective, uh, where, you know, a, you're, so Pakistan is one of those countries that, you know, it has one of the largest canal network uh, to redistribute river water for agriculture purposes, especially in the area where I grew up in. Um, but then the government controls how much they can, uh, you know, extend. And then that gets distributed by the farms and how much land you have and so on. Um, so there was always that issue of, you know, in summertime and so on, uh, where you would have rationing of water and that would impact your crop yield. 
And that had all sorts of like repercussions from food insecurity to um, you know financial insecurity and so on. Um, but you're not able to sort of like think through it because you don't have like again, like I said a moment ago, exposure that it's tied back to climate change. Um, and then uh, growing up in Pakistan, also U.S. started uh, one of their many wars and interventions around the globe um, in Afghanistan, which is a neighboring country to Pakistan. And uh, that ended up having Pakistan being one of the largest refugee hosting countries because of a U.S. initiated war. So socially and culturally, I grew up with that context without having the language and understanding and more sophisticated terminology for a lot of that stuff. Uh, but we had a lot of Afghan workers uh, with, uh, you know, like a lot of social pressure. Of it's a Pakistani culture is fairly hospitable, so like they were very open to it. But end of the day, when it comes to resources and your government is spending more resources, much like the U.S. government, towards military action and militarism versus social programming, uh, that kind of creates that tension. So, uh, you know, there were those workers that you saw them uh, not only as food vendors, but also agriculture workers and so on, that they virtually had no rights whatsoever. Like if you could, uh, you could sort of like, you know, they would do the job, but you could deny them wages. And there were rarely any repercussions for it, you know. And interestingly enough, like, it's quite fascinating that a lot of those challenges in agriculture world, uh, farm workers, uh, they're very similar uh, in the United States, even though I've been here for a very limited time. And I don't claim that I do community engagement work here in the U.S. anyways. Uh, not yet, anyways. Um, but those challenges are very same. Like, you know, there are language barriers, much like there um, in the U.S. context, it's majority of them speak Spanish. Uh, majority of these folks are undocumented. And in our social context, there's always this narrative in the United States that, oh, look at these um, illegal migrants, whatever that means, um, coming in and taking our jobs and whatnot. Uh, when reality, there really is that if it wasn't for this particular community, our entire country would shut down. You know, like we would not be able to literally feed ourselves, you know, and that's something that we don't sort of think about as much. Uh, so I always encourage people to whenever they're consuming their I, I live in D.C. and <clears throat> a lot of the people here are uh, very privileged in their bubbles, uh, you know, and they're very well educated and uh, with very good intentions, but not the most critical people, I would say. So I am always trying to encourage them to think about those farm workers when they're consuming their fancy little salad somewhere. Um, so yeah, like, <clears throat> but to long story short, like I, I grew up there, then I ended up, I had some scholarship, I ended up for medical school back in China. Uh, and that was partly because I have to jokingly say I went to med school because I'm brown and my parents told me so. <laughs> um, and uh, that's mostly because like culturally you either have to be a physician or an engineer. Uh, there's nothing in between. Um, and uh, throughout med school, I was going to pursue uh, interior designing after that because that's something I enjoy. Um, but I did um, some of the underserved related work back in China with the Uyghur community, uh, which I do want to highlight in this just because I have the platform. Uh, that there's an active genocide going on for that community right now where the global community has been largely silent, including the United States. Um, and uh, it's a it's a 
majority minority situation there. So they're majority in that area, but minority in China and Chinese government is um, actively committing cultural genocide at the moment for the particular community. Um, and uh, after moving from China, I worked in Pakistan as a physician intern for about a year. Um, that's where I got to work closely with a little bit of brick factory workers, a little bit of transgender health. And I really fell in love with it. And um, I could never, and until this day, I cannot uh, sort of like tell you that there is this one particular area of interest I have. Like it's just because public health is so interdisciplinary and touches everything, especially with the climate change and environmental health context. Uh, it's like all of it uh, that I just enjoy very much. So, and I was fortunate to, you know, my family moved here back in 2009. And uh, after moving here, I just have been in public health and uh, it's my eternal love. Great. And I, and I, you actually kind of led me into my next question. So you did write about uh, farm worker health for us. And it seems like early on that kind of shaped you and maybe it's something you were paying attention to, but I've seen your writing since and, and some of the things you're researching. And it does seem like you kind of cast a wide net when it comes to public health, environmental health and environmental justice. And I'm wondering kind of what are some of the other issues that are, um, sounds like all of them, but what are some of the issues that are maybe kind of really sticking to you right now that, that are keeping you up at night? Um, so I want to say like keeping me up at night, I think like at the moment, I know that folks try to avoid the, anything that uh, closely resembles politics. Um, so currently, just because we um, barely survived fascism um, in a few months or weeks ago. Um, and so I just want to sort of like, you know, point that out um, that there was a lot of activism um, and I'm not saying it was disingenuous, you know, like it was very genuine, like people were concerned, but I just want to uplift that part that a lot of those issues were there before a certain administration came into power. So that's what I mean by structural issues, but the U S society is just so individualistic People who are very well-meaning and often talking about social determinants of health and structural issues and systematic issues and whatnot. So they would talk about those issues, but end of the day, almost always their interventions are individual level. And that's just not going to cut it, you know. Uh, so what keeps me up at night is, A, that people are going to get uh, uh, complacent and uh, they're not going to push the upcoming administration as hard as they should be pushing. Um, I've always maintained that public health is very political. We are not partisan. Those are two different things, and we should not be conflating about the two. Uh, we should be thinking about how to develop certain frameworks to talk about these and you know, have those conversations openly and frankly without pushing uh, people away uh, who may disagree with us on certain opinions. Um, but uh, this is something I think like that's a, that's a fear of mine that um, the upcoming administration, just because of the complacency of people like myself and other people in academia, um, is going to lead to those exact same conditions that gave rise to um, the previous administration to begin with. Uh, so that's one of my concerns. And the second thing really is like climate change. You know, with climate change is um, almost all of my work has some, in some shape or form, has climate change and health equity uh, related focus into it. Uh, and climate change is a multiplier of social inequities. And uh, that's something that I think like we still do not uh, 
think as a society that it's as big of a deal as it actually is. Um, and by that, I'm not uh, uh, talking about the general population. I understand that we live in a society where we're just so forced into a daily grind that people don't have time to take time out and think about these issues in a critical way. And I get it. But for people who are in academia and so on, like this, like sort of like, you know, intellectual intellectual one persons, uh, as I like to call them with their PhDs, there are like what three to five percent of people have terminal degrees in this country. So it's those people um, who would say in one sentence that, oh, it's an existential threat. But when you talk to them about solutions, that almost never meets that level, what you just described the problem to be, right? Like, you know, then they start talking about pragmatism and incrementalism and so on. Um, and we are a filthy rich country, you know, like I, it's, a, and that's, there's no question about it, you know, like it's just a matter of where we focus our uh, advocacy efforts and whether or not we actually think that it's a big enough issue that's going to impact uh, our society and across the globe, not just the United States, but more importantly in the U.S. case, when we think about the intersectionality part of things, it's almost always uh, racial and ethnic minorities or you know, women or LGBTQ population and so on. Um, who have historically faced vulnerabilities because of structural issues like racism, uh, they're going to pay the biggest price for climate change. And it's and um, I just want to say that, like, it's not that they're going to, but they are currently at the moment. You know, indigenous populations is an example of it. Uh, so that's one of the things that I just want to say that, like, you know, regardless of, like, which particular area you pick, uh, climate change is almost always going to exacerbate those particular uh, disparities and inequities. Um, and um, there, there's sort of like, you know, there's a, there has been a long debate between climate mitigation and climate adaptation. And people have been pushing back against climate adaptation because like, oh, it's going to take away from mitigation efforts and so on. But the reality there is communities are suffering now. Uh, by no fault of their own. Uh, so we need to sort of like think about it a lot more aggressively uh, instead of doing yet another theoretical exercise, proving yet another point that we've done time and time again. Perhaps we should think about that we have this all this research. How do we take it and then apply it into policies and practices where uh, we can adapt our society and our systems in a more equitable way? Because like, most of these systems were not built for most people uh, who are not white in the United States. You know, like they were built by white people for white people, thanks to colonization. And now we've come around to calling this stuff, like using all sorts of like sophisticated terms about that uh, stuff. So, you know, it's like, but end of the day, uh, all of the systems are not conducive to a large chunk of this country's population. And we need to have a serious conversation about how do we go back to the drawing board uh, and rebuild uh, a lot of our society with the threat of climate change that, again, was caused by us. So when you think about these the, the inequities you talk about, especially for uh, women, people of color, LGBTQ communities, um, you know, I think climate change for so long was framed. It started what the polar bears, right? And then we started talking about things like food security, maybe uh, crops and heat. You know, I'm thinking 
heat stroke, heat events, and things like that. What are some of the more kind of insidious public health threats uh, for these vulnerable communities in particular? And maybe to build on that, um, taking that next step, what what are some of your big ideas, you know, taking the research out of the journal into the public sphere and whether it's through policy or other other ways, how can we start to remedy some of these ills? Yeah, um, I think like it's, uh, so we hear this term about critical thinking all the time in public health literature and at schools and so on. Uh, but often people are not thinking about things as critically as they may claim. Uh, and I'm not, I know I sound very lectury, uh, but that's not my intention. I'm just pointing out uh, what I've observed. Uh, and that's partly the function of the cultural shock that I had after moving to the U.S., that just how uncritical people were here. Because, uh, you know, you have a certain persona of the United States out in the outside world of this, like, super advanced society. And I'm like, wow, that's a shocker. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I think, like, uh, so thinking about, like, you know, more insidious stuff, like, I would just want to point out that, like, it's like, I don't think like we need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to, for the most part, and that's why like a lot of my work is sort of like observational and it's like writing commentaries because I went back to academia to learn the language and understand the methodology really well so I could comment on a lot of these social structures uh, in a more, uh, somewhat more uh, competent way, I suppose. Um, So it's thinking about like, you know, like terms like, intersectionality, like operationalize it. And when we operationalize it, then you really begin to think about populations, like for instance, transgender population in prisons, right? Uh, We still have in the United States, you know, modern form of slavery. Uh, We just call it prison labor. Uh, That doesn't take away what it actually is, you know, from uh, the 13th Amendment exclusion. So when we think about that thing, like, you know, now when you add all those layers of like who these populations are. This is just one example of a number of other examples out there, but just in um, with respect to our time here. Uh, so transgender gender population and uh, who are imprisoned uh, and then like, you know, they have to work and then they have to work in this climate, clim- climate uh, change related variations that they're, which are not conducive to their rights or protections, for instance, right? Be it inside the prisons or outside the prisons, right? Wildfires were happening, floods were happening. We often bring people who are already imprisoned and then expose them to dealing with the aftermath of a lot of these disasters, right? And then like, we're not extending the same level of worker safety and protection to this population as we would be to other people, which in itself is a pretty abysmal situation to begin with. Um, And then there's a whole issue of climate adaptation, you know, like in prison population, like our prisons are not adapting to, you know, like climactic conditions, even though that's, that's not to say that they should be thinking about it. We should really be thinking about how do we abolish prisons and not so much how do we fix this system and sustain it, uh, but immediately, urgently, you know, there have been cases of like people dying because of like exposure to heat because of their comorbidities and so on. And these are really sort of like, you know, like fundamental basic human rights issues. Like I, I don't think like I'm asking for a lot. Like I'm just like end of the day, like I always say, I'm like, I, I don't think like I'm, 
uh, sort of like, you know, saying anything novel or earth shattering. I'm just observing and I'm just asking for basic human dignity uh, for a lot of these people. So that's where sort of like, you know, the idea of like climate change comes in. And then like, I think like uh, um, on uh, the grand idea, like I have a number of grand ideas and uh, I usually joke about uh, that's universal healthcare and basic income would be a good start. Um, but uh, sort of like immediately, I just want to say that like, I think like academic structures, mostly because like I'm, um, you know, being a doctoral student and also a faculty member, I'm involved with some of that part. And a lot of times, like these are the folks who produce this research. I think we need to hold each other accountable and a little bit more than we do at the moment. Uh, and that also involves asking the hard question and not in a confrontational way, but like asking, like, why are you doing what you're doing? You know, like, how is it going to affect anything beyond a few citations that you're going to get, you know, or 10 people reading it? Uh, And then we think about like, you know, any of the work that gets done. And then when we sort of like, you know, reform a lot of our structures within academia, within NIH and so on, and tie that back to impact and that impact being defined community-related work that did it lead to or is it going to lead to some change in practice in terms of policies, in terms of programs, and so on? How many lives is it going to improve instead of this, like, some hyperbole that, you know, that's what researchers would do, right? Like, you know, they would just, like, conduct this million-dollar study, uh, and then in the end, like, you know, their conclusion is that it's going to improve population health. And that's uh, that's the magical part. That's the black box that no one knows how, no one knows when uh, or any of it. Um, and I think, like, we we are collectively intelligent enough that we can develop and we should be developing those frameworks. Like, what are those uh, sort of, like, frameworks to think about that part? And the other thing is the qualitative research part. Like, if you go back only a couple of decades ago, People were not as comfortable with that part um, as they are a little bit now. Um, and uh, I think, like, and I bring that up to say, um, I know that this sounds like super basic and cliched, but a lot of times, a lot of our research and that entire narrative is almost always focused on what is, uh, but it doesn't tell us anything about the context, right? Like, you know, and that robs people of their humanity and dignity and, like, never provides that broader context in which we operate. Uh, So, and that's something that I myself have been sort of like questioning myself and like thinking about it more. Uh, In fact, like I'm probably going to send an email to my very lovely dissertation chair uh, to maybe do one of my dissertations on qualitative work, you know, like related to that instead of sort of doing more quantitative work because it's always telling you what is. So I would encourage folks to like, you know, again, like I'm targeting it to academics uh, the think about that big, bigger context that like, you know, what is your impact? Like, how are you going to measure it? You know, like it's like that's a really important critical question. And that's where I think like people would begin to appreciate the value of mixed methods and qualitative research and so on. Um, and for the broader population, rest of my uh, U.S. Uh, uh, I don't like to use the term citizens, uh, people who live in the U.S., the rest of us. Um, I would just say, like, focus on that advocacy part, that it really matters. Like, you know, hold your, uh, the politicians who you voted for, regardless of the party, hold their feet to fire, ask them and, like, demand action, because, like, that's our current system 
for good or for worse. Uh, so I would just like really encourage them to and reach out to academics, you know, like ask them very openly, how can you support us, right? Uh, and academics should be reaching out to the communities as well, that how can we support you in your advocacy efforts, like be it at the federal level, local level, state level. There's a lot that happens in down ballot races. Uh, so I would just really encourage people to sort of like focus on that part and you know, those folks who don't think their vote matters, like just look at the results. Like end of the day, like it's always a few thousand that make uh, a huge difference in terms of like, you know, who gets to be where. Uh, but then like when they are there, like your story shouldn't end there. Your story should start at that particular point that like, you know, now you owe me. Uh, and and that's something like, you know, in the, in the U.S. context, like again, like I um, highlight that, that I'm still uh, rather... Uh, new to the United States, and I'm still learning the culture and everything. But for all my years here uh, in the U.S., you know, like um, it's a Democratic Party, for instance, um, has been uh, for the longest time. They are the ones who allegedly leading the charge on climate change and so on. Um, And uh, Black women have historically came out and came through to save this party from itself uh, and put them in positions of power. And end of the day, almost always exclusively, their policies were not conducive to that particular community. Uh, and that's something that I think like that's, but that, that onus should not be on the community, that, that onus should be on the rest of us, that we go back and hold them, that now your policies should be more humane and more conducive to the population who put you in power to begin with. So that's what I sort of like, you know, that's just one example. And you could sort of like, you know, do the exact same sort of uh, uh, analysis for a Republican senator and so on. Uh, But I just, uh, the case I'm trying to make is that public health does not operate in isolation. Uh, It is inherently tied with politics and we should not be shying away from that particular part. And we should be critically thinking about it uh, that when these people are in power, that's when our real work starts. Uh, And, you know, instead of using all sorts of like, and I, I've seen this, like people become experts in basically in apologetics. And I sit there and think, I'm like, wow, you have a degree in divinity, it seems. Uh, because like, you know, instead of like pushing people that, no, you need to do more. Um, and if it was a case for a country like Pakistan, which has no resources, I get it that like you don't have resources. In our case in the United States, it's just a matter of how do we redistribute our resources uh, as opposed to whether or not you have those. Right. And I, I want to get on to science communication and, and your writing and, and, and some of those, because I kind of view <clears throat> the layperson communication, the, the writing you're doing as kind of that bridge between the science and the action, right? The advocacy, the political will. Um, but before we get there, I, I, I have a question I like to ask, and it is, uh, I, I want to, before we move forward in your life, fast forward here is, what was a defining moment that shaped your identity? I know you bounced around a little bit geographically and um, topically, it seems like, uh, and, and things that were holding your interest. So a defining moment that shaped your identity. Oh, I, uh, so I'm, 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 I'm a, so part of, you and I have had this conversation before about the usage of social media. And uh, I've only started using Twitter like a few months ago. And that was thanks to Dr. Ami Zoda, Um And because she, pushed me enough to start using it. So this was all to say that I'm a fairly private person uh, outside of my uh, very loud opinions. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, 
But the defining moment for me really was, um, I'll share one of those with you that I, so when I was working back in Pakistan um, in, as a physician intern there, I was setting up this particular program there for uh, MSM population, men who have sex with men. Um, and uh, so the challenge there really was that we had a transgender community um, and then close by and we would sort of like, you know, because it was a community hospital um, and evening clinic would not charge them anything. So a lot of them would come visit us at that particular point. Um, then we also were the provider of for a lot of these, um, the rest of the community in the area as well. Uh, so the challenge there really was, or I guess the mystery there really was that we would have these women who would come in for their uh, prenatal checkup or during pregnancy and so on. Uh, but they would have all sorts of STIs. And uh, our challenge was that uh, Pakistan is a fairly theocratic society and fairly gendered, uh, that they have never left their home. So how are they getting uh, this um, these STIs? And that's a fair assumption to make. Um, and you can get ascertain it a little bit more after uh, taking the history. Um, but the challenge there really was that men were having sex with this like transgender community, which is uh, which they work as sex workers, and they have a in India and Pakistan they have a different understanding of uh, transgender population. They call it third gender. Um, and so as sex workers, they had virtually no protections whatsoever or autonomy to be able to negotiate condom use, for instance, you know, like or any of it because of all sorts of cultural pressures. And uh, so one of the so I and I, I used to volunteer in my evening clinic. Um, and uh, this one particular person who I was talking to, um, she uh, she was a transgender sex worker and uh, um it's, it still makes me a bit emotional, even though it's not that big of a deal. But like, so was, the way I was talking to her, like, you know, she, she just like immediately started crying. And here I am, this intern, I was like, okay, I screwed up. Like, what did I do? Uh, and uh, she was like, no one has ever talked to me uh, with that level of humanity and dignity before. Um, so then she was like, you know, can I give you a hug? And I was like, yeah, like, I'm like very huggy touchy, please, uh, by all means. Um, and uh, then, like, you know, she went on to describing her whole story of, like, growing up as a transgender child and then her family leaving it, leaving her uh, on this particular shrine. And then later on, like, then how society treats them and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, like, regardless of their work, like, be it sex work or other type of work they may be engaging in. Um, so that was really sort of, like, to me, uh, that spoke to this bigger issue that, all of this is at the system's level that like we, we just have this obsession with individual level uh, focus. And we think that if we just fix the person, things are going to be just all right. And they almost never are. Um, so that was sort of like, you know, one of the big moments where I sort of like switched from interior designing to public health uh, that I was like, no, it's going to be public health for sure. So. Wow. That's uh, what a great story. It reminds me a lot of, um, I mean, great as in what it became for you. I mean, heartbreaking on the uh, on the individual level. But it reminds me a lot of doing journalism for years and meeting people who you who are nice enough to have you into their homes to tell their story, and you can tell they are just so happy someone's listening uh, because yeah. regulators and officials and uh, politicians, who, whomever, has no hasn't listened to them, and uh, it, it's a really big responsibility as a reporter. Um, so I, I definitely feel you there. Um, 
So I, I did want to get into um, so science communication, um, which is how I met you, of course, through Agents of Change. Uh, and it seems like writing and communicating research and ideas is, is really important to you, more so than a lot of researchers I know. And I'm wondering why that is and how, as a researcher, that came to be, since it's not often taught or really incentivized uh, in academia. Yeah, um, so I, I continue to call and consider myself a practitioner and not a researcher. Um, and part of that is that it's uh, it's it's just difficult within academia. Um, I, I, I'm many things, conformist is not one of them. And, and part of that challenge is that within academia, there is this like constant pressure uh, to focus on one outcome or one particular thing and then just like do that till kingdom comes. Um, and I've never been that person, especially within public health. I continue to be that kid in a candy shop. I uh, very strongly believe that um, I have the privilege to do something that I love so passionately. A lot of people don't. Uh, they're doing their work because it pays their bills. Um, <clears throat> I'm fortunate to do something that I genuinely am in love with. Uh, and and I, I, I want to be able to use that uh, for that sort of like, you know, broader uh, social change. And I think like that comes from, and I, I see myself at this, as that almost as a bridge between <clears throat> These people for, you know, like we can litigate them at a later time uh, at, at another time, like people in academia uh, who are constantly publishing this like exceptional knowledge out there. They're putting it out there, but it almost never gets translated. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's uh, that's a bit harsh. Uh, a lot of times it doesn't get translated into practice. You know, like I, I give this example, like I read this, I believe it was a meta-analysis <clears throat> One of the initial things when I was um, doing my MPH uh, back in like 2014 or so, um, that the I think the title is that the answer is 10 years. What's the question? And the answer is 17 years. What's the question? Something to that effect. Like people can Google it and they'll be able to find it. Uh, but they were looking at uh, uh, research when it gets published versus when it actually gets translated into practice. Um, and uh, my understanding is, if my memory serves me correctly, they were looking at uh, research that was related to um, healthcare management. Uh, and I've had the fortune of working in health services management capacity in the past. Um, and if you are working up top a particular clinic or a hospital, you have control over almost every single variable within that particular limited capacity. And you can sort of like control your interaction with all sorts of other stakeholders. So to me, the bigger question was that if it takes you nearly two decades to translate research in that capacity, just how long would it take for public health related research to get actually translated uh, where we are often working in a lot of ambiguous uh, scenarios and, and settings and, um, so that's where I saw like, you know, and I felt and I continue to feel very strongly that I, there are people who are doing this stuff and I value them. I respect them. I want to be able to take their stuff and uplift it, you know? Uh, so that's where I think like the role of science communication comes in. Um, and especially in the U S like we're thanks to our rugged individualism, which is America's favorite porn. Um, thanks to that, like people think that just because we are a republic or a democracy, uh, my ignorance is as good as your knowledge. 
Um, and I think like that's where the role of science communication comes in because like a lot of times either we are talking to people as though they're dumb as rocks uh, and we are questioning their dignity because like we're lecturing them, right? Like without acknowledging precisely what you were talking about earlier, that as journalists, when you talk to these folks, like no one has listened to them, you know, for the longest time. And academics are not immune to that, right? Like when we talk to them, like often our attitude is holier than thou. Uh, and we're just telling people, you know, what they should think, you know, like versus trying to engage them that like there are this like a number of these issues and like this is where we fit in and meeting them where they are. Um, and especially with climate change, you know, like that's uh, and I think like it's a, uh, it's a bigger issues of the framing, right? Like, you know, who do you talk to? How do you talk to them? There are things that may not be important to some people than they are to other people. Like you, we started this conversation, you talking about polar bears, you know. From a limited time in the U.S., like, I know that we don't care about polar bears. Like, it's, uh, so I don't know who came up with it, uh, but I'm sure it was well-intentioned. Uh, had we tied that thing back to issues that Americans care about, like national security? Climate change is a national security threat. Um, and you could sell virtually anything in the U.S. if you tagged it with national security. So from an academic perspective, I still don't understand, like, why issues like public health and climate change, which are genuine national security threats, are not told as such, you know, if it is about reaching a particular population. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, be insidious or uh, disingenuous about it. Like, these are genuine, legitimate uh, national security issues, you know, like our economy basically collapsed because of this pandemic. Why? Because our public health systems were historically, regardless of the administration, are chronically underfunded, you know, like it's like we're paying the price for wildfires, floods, hurricanes. Why? Because historically, none of the administrations has treated climate change with the urgency um, and aggressiveness that it deserves. Uh, So in all of that, uh, going back to your question, I think like uh, academics should like, you know, be very careful about uh, and intentional about communicating their science and research back to the communities. Because like, you know, there are few fields which has the word public literally in their field itself. And public health is one of those. Right. Um, And when we talk about environmental health, for instance, like even now, like people don't understand these terms very well, excuse me, like environmental health is still. People think it it uh, to be about tree huggers and so on, you know, like, and you could be both, I am. Um, but at the same time, like, it is about, you know, like, tied back to the asthma and cancer and someone's grandma dying and so on. You know, like, those are real legitimate issues that, like, you know, we should be thinking about and tying it back to. And that, to me, is a science communications failure. And I think, like, if we, if we and we should uh, train people almost as rigorously rigorously as we do their other methodological training about science communications, if we are concerned about, you know, the social justice beyond the performative stuff that we talk about. And so you mentioned earlier Twitter and, you know, I, obviously you're doing writings in journals and uh, I, I saw a piece in the Boston Globe and of course for EHN. Um, but then there's this micro communication um, that we both kind of share a, a healthy distrust of. So I'm wondering how that's been for you. I know you're on Twitter now. How's it going on there? And are you using any other social media to to amplify some of your work and, and thoughts on these issues? 
Mostly just Twitter. And I, I would say, like, even Twitter came about out of deference for Ami, because, uh, like, she is the one I have the utmost respect for. Um, and, uh, you know, like, and, and I take good advice from people who are smarter than I am, and she most certainly is. Um, it's been great, um, but I think uh, uh, it does create uh, this, like, m- and I, I myself, I'm like, you know, I still have like rather limited engagement with Twitter itself, but I think it creates this like micro chasms uh, where people think that Twitter is rest of the U.S. Uh, and it's not. Uh, and that's, I think, like is is and has been my um, sort of like one of my fears uh, that, you know, like perhaps we have created yet another bubble for ourselves. Uh, where we think that, you know, like our work is not uh, getting done or getting the same sort of like, you know, outreach uh, outside of Twitter worse. Uh, so I think like that's what my uh, ongoing concern, challenge, whatever you want to frame it, is about Twitter itself. Um, and it's, uh, it's you know, like, and, and I don't know, like, if it's a, it's a social critique or however you want to call it, but I think like that's generally... Um, a challenge in the U.S. that people are not openly willing to engage with others. And Twitter is a classic example of it. It's like, uh, you know, like a lot of times, be it researchers or so on, um, it can become like fairly toxic where like people are uh, off the mentality of this like digital pitchforks and torches uh, without sort of like, you know, having an open, engaged conversation. So it all becomes that how pithy and snarky you can be in whatever those limited characters are, uh, as opposed to that I'm here to uh, do a broader engagement uh, and send my message out in a way that may be more conducive to a lot of the population out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I see a lot of value in it. I just, uh, I think like it's, it's just not compatible with my personality. Otherwise, you know, like I love, people when I'm with them uh, as you know I'm a chatty person um, but the whole digital part is just I think it's a more so of a personal barrier than anything Twitter related but you should try it you should try it <laughs> well I I was on there I was on all of them at one point as a young journalist wanting to make sure I was um I was out there and now I have editor in my title so I can hide and uh <laughs> reporters and freelancers uh, go out there and, and promote. I, you know, I will say your first point about it not being representative of the public or the, I think that's a really important point. You know, I know during this election, depending on what side you were on or, or, or who you were rooting for on, on policy and politician issues, you go on Twitter and you either think the world is ending or everything's perfect. Right. And, and I don't know about you, but then I talk to people, I, I live in a rural area and I talk to neighbors and they don't even know what's going, they don't even know who's running or something, you know, right. they're so far removed. And, and it seems like we're so polarized where, uh, and I think it amplifies that polarization, or at least the facade of it. Um, yeah, yeah. And it also kind of robs us off those like critical discussions that we should be having. Um, and, you know, because they, end of the day, like it's, you, we can have our viewpoints. Uh, and there are certain things which are not sort of like conducive or I, I suppose like up for debate, you know, whatever human dignity and basic human rights are concerned, be it reproductive justice, be it LGBTQ rights, racism, any of that, you know, I'm not going to have like, I'm not going to pander to you and have that conversation with you and like, you know, schmooze you into listening to me. Like it's like, that is not my headache, but 
there are many, many other issues, like especially when we talk about like a lot of the solutions to a lot of that stuff. Uh, people who may be otherwise ideologically or uh, as far as their solutions are concerned, like aligned with me when it comes to having those conversations, they're not very open uh, to having those conversations, you know, like, and like you said, though, like it's uh, then again, like it's uh, including my own family, like I don't believe like maybe one or two people, like rest of them, like don't use it, have no clue about Twitter. But when you go on it, it just seems like, you know, you're just like constantly they're like, oh, uh, what am I going to get like, you know, angry about right now? So let's. Right. <laughs> I remember seeing a tweet once. Uh, what are we outraged about today? Twitter or something like that. And it, and it rung so true. I, you know, I will say that it, it's not all evil. And, and we found through this Agents of Change program, uh, we have found we had our original cohort of, of which you were part. And then all of a sudden we had this outpouring uh, at EHN on our <laughs> Twitter of other of other similar researchers, um, young researchers of color that I didn't know about the awesome work they were doing. And it created this snowball effect. So that, I mean, that was really cool and stuff like that is, is just great. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, that may or may not have something to do with Ami being a genius. So like, (laughs) (laughs) um, and also I think like, um, and this is just like, not about Twitter. Like, I think like I, I just assume all the positives and I acknowledge them. So any anything I'm saying, it's not zero-sum game. I'm just like talking about things that most people otherwise don't talk about. So that's where like, I'm like, I'm not being negative. I promise. Like, you know, I agree with you on all the positives, but we should also be thinking about all this other stuff. So. Sure. So I just have a couple more questions, Anz. And, and, and again, I appreciate your time. This has been great. Um, and this, this you know, this kind of ties in both things we've talked about, which is public health and missing mis or, or, or social science communication. And that's we're kind of simultaneously right now in a waged in a public health and a misinformation battle, um, thinking about COVID and looking at that and beyond. I'm wondering if you're optimistic that science and reason and justice can and will win out. Um, I am a very obnoxiously optimistic person, so um, I absolutely think we will. Uh, but I do think and I continue to believe that it's going to come from critical thinking. Um, and that means us challenging all of our assumptions. And by that, I mean, like, virtually all of our assumptions. You know, like, it's like going back to acknowledging America's first sins of genocide and then enslavement of human beings and so on and uh, its perpetuation in more sophisticated ways in our public policies right now Uh, because if we are not going to go back to acknowledging what we have been doing all these hundreds of years uh, later like we're not going to be able to honestly move forward and I think like that's where uh, it needs to start Uh, we need to acknowledge that Part, historical perspectives, historical injustices, and so on. And then we need to think about the, like, how do we sort of like, you know, because a lot of these systems are, again, like I mentioned it before at some point in my rambling, uh, that a lot of these systems are very white supremacist, you know, like these. And so when we people talk about reform, you know, like, I'm not so sure if how much I buy that, you know, like a lot of times like these simply need to be dismantled uh, and built back up in a more equitable and inclusive way. Um, and, you know, it's like, and uh, speaking of like optimism, I think like the challenge there really is and has 
consistently been that terms come up and then people hijack those, right? Like mostly corporations, including academia, because we run academia as a corporation, private industry. Um, things like diversity and inclusion, right? Like, you know, it's just, that's that's one of the things that I've worked in on um, on and off for many, many years. Uh, and in my experience, more often than not, people would let me work till the point I give them what the solutions are. At that point, it's like our interests completely diverge um, because like solutions are not conducive to their bottom line. You know, solutions are not conducive to their status quo because like solutions are because they always treat diversity and inclusion as things uh, you know, they frame these in this like rosy terms about like optimism and so on. But in reality, those are just simple processes and start to bring people to that equal grounding so they can then define and think about like how should these systems look like. Um, but yeah, like I, I am uh, very optimistic uh, about the future of science and uh, justice. And I think. Uh, I do think like it's going to move towards that, but it's not going to move towards that through uh, thoughts and prayers or good intentions of politicians or, um, you know, having a white supremacist administration, diversity edition. So like none of that is going to do it. Like we need to do the hard work and we need to have the hard conversations uh, in order to push that towards uh, justice. You know, like it's like uh, that book, um, uh, that uh, freedom is a constant struggle. Uh, so it's it's just that, the, like, you know, it's, like, it's a constant thing that we need to be thinking about and pushing forward. And a lot of times, like, you know, you're going to have people you're going to make uncomfortable, and that's fine because um, that's where the growth is going to come from. Because, uh, like, for the longest time, uh, we've all we've done is um, either uh, manage the comfort of the uh, majority of this country, which was Caucasians, uh, white people, um, or alternatively protect a system which was built on very racist uh, and genocidal um, and inhumane uh, foundation. Uh, and I think that those are the conversations we need to have and openly and be comfortable about those. So. Awesome. I'll, I'll title this Hans the Optimist with a, a question mark after Optimist. So last question here. What is the last book you read for fun? I see a big book belt, bookshelf behind you. Oh, goodness. I have been. So there is this one, The City We Became. <clears throat> I have this brilliant friend, Ashley Benek Tabasco. Uh, she, uh, her and I uh, had been thinking about a, our two people book club. Um, excuse me. And I have not read fiction in a very, very long time. And uh, last time I read fiction in a meaningful way was in Urdu language back in Pakistan. And partly because I think Urdu language is like a lot more richer than English. English is just really bland. Uh, but this book uh, is just, it's a great social commentary and great social critique. And it's been a bit difficult for me to read, but uh, it's a uh, the City We Became, that's the book that I'm reading right now. And the other one is Fisher Workplace, uh, mostly because they've been thinking a lot about gig work. Um, and that's a good book uh, on reading it. And I also concluded, and this is just a shameless plug for my mentor, uh, The Triumph of Doubt. Uh, I think like uh, that should be a science policy Bible for a lot of people who come into science thinking that it's the word of God. Um, and he just walks us through 
all sorts of challenges about integrity and so on uh, by David Michaels. Uh, so yeah, those are, because so, I read them like, you know, uh, at the same time, like two, three, like chapter here, chapter there. So yeah. So that was The City We Became. What was the second one? Uh, the City We Became. Um, this second one is Fisher Workplace. And then David's book is? Uh, David Michael's book is Triumph of Doubt. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. So anything you want to promote or where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on Twitter. <laughs> I will check my Twitter. Uh, it's a PH scientist. Um, so they're welcome I, to come say hi to me. Actually, you know, like uh, I, I do want to say, like you know, I I sound very negative about Twitter. Like you know, I, I've met like very nice people on it. Like you know, reached out to me like with appreciation or uh, critique of my work, and it's been great in that. So uh, they're welcome to come. <laughs> You found a good bubble so far. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Great bubble. <laughs> well, Anz, this has been a lot of fun. You've been honestly one of my very favorite people I've met uh, through this Agents of Change program. And I mean that. Uh, thanks so much for taking time today. Thank you, Brian. It's it's a pleasure to work with you. And thank you for doing Lord's work and keep it up um, and be in touch. Wow. What a guy that Anz. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. And you can now subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. Just search Agents of Change and Environmental Health. Podcast production team is myself, Brian Binkowski, Gwen Raniger, and Raya Hadud. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with any suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Have a great week, folks.